Welcome to another Friday edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Strance, who of course also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. They did it. They made it a fun Kevin Bieksa night at Rogers Arena. Drancer, they beat the Ducks 8-5 in a really kind of a goofy game. But hey, when you come out on the right side at home on a goofy game, there's there's nothing too wrong with that. So I walked into a widely patronized chain coffee shop. Who I don't believe are official sponsors, so I'm going right. to call them out directly on my way into. Although, the if you're watching station. on the Twitter stream, it is prominently displayed right now. There Not we anymore. go. There we go. Not anymore. And I walked in, and it was like the Christmas season, like the Yuletide had just thrown up all over the store, right? And it was sort of my first time in this month, so I wasn't prepared for it, but. I walk in and all of a sudden it's like, you better watch out. You better not cry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're you're an early Christmas music. I player, am, right? yes. Not I haven't started it yet. And so is Kevin Bieksa and, and people like you make me sick. And I just wasn't ready. You know, like my vibes were not ready for holiday cheer at all. At all. And it just felt wildly premature to me. It just felt like everyone getting ahead of themselves. And that's what I think about <laughs> people talking about, hey, Canucks of one, three, and four. Three and four. And here's why. I want to be clear about this. I've liked some of what I've seen from the Canucks this week. Genuinely. I liked the defensive effort late in uh, Seattle a lot, even though I thought they were outplayed in that game. I liked the performance against Pittsburgh in full. I didn't like the Devils game. And you know what? Last night, last night was just so dull and lackadaisical for 30 minutes that I was so grateful when a real fire wagon bit of hockey broke out and turned an evening that really should have been celebratory for the organization into just that. Fans getting a chance to celebrate eight home goals, the Kuzmenko reception when they threw, show, threw his face on the Jumbotron after the hat trick. Like, it was just a good night out. The vibes were very, very good. Yes. And, and you love to see it. This team needs that. So three and four, okay? I want to I talk about this. I want to try and zoom out. I... I as much as we can talk about that game, like the Ducks are pitiful, and I really think you have to be careful about taking too much from it. Bruce Boudreaux clearly was careful about taking too much from it. He's completely scrambled his lines of practice, something we'll get into shortly. So, three and four, right? Thinking about BX's speech, which, by the way, is the thing we'll remember from last night five years from now, right? BX's speech that the team posted from the locker room. For this team, right, considering... The ages, considering they extended their best player before the season, right? Considering all the draft picks that have been traded, all the cap space committed to construct this team. Three and four against a reeling Penguins team, a Seattle Kraken team that has atrocious goaltending and shouldn't make the playoffs. A absolute, absolute Bedard-bound, Bedard lottery-bound bottom feeder, feeder in the Anaheim Ducks. Three and four, at mostly at home, should be an expectation, Right? It shouldn't be like, cause for celebration, the season's back online. This is it. This is the expectation against teams like this for a team constructed in this posture. Period. Period. It's the expectation. And we have to, you know, it's not just like the Canucks culturally 
that we want to see rise to be X's standard in my view, right? Like it's also needs to be the way we talk about and discuss this team, right? Like we can't do head pats and orange slices for professional athletes at this point, right? Three and four against quality of competition like the Canucks have faced this week, expectation. They've hit their baseline expectation of what they should have done this week, right? And now what should they do next week? Well, Nashville, Montreal, Ottawa, before you go into Toronto, which is just over a week away, so I get to properly squirrel this and only talk about those three games. <laughs> At least two or three, right? At least two or three. At least. And so if you win two of three, people are going to be, hey, they've won five of their last seven. Great. That's the expectation. That has to be the expectation for a team constructed to accomplish this, for a team that went into the season with these level of expectations, these sorts of ambitions. Expectation. Just because you start the season slowly doesn't mean we lower the bar. Just because the decade has been so miserable doesn't mean we lower the bar. And that's one thing that infects Canucks discourse. People are like, just let, let the fans have fun. Don't be, don't be critical about the performance of the Bruce, there it is, Canucks. They haven't had fun in so long. And it's like, well, if that fun translates into more mistakes this summer, you won't have fun for even longer, right? Like, raise the bar. That's part of, that's part of you know, that's part of my interpretation anyway of, of what it means to cover, talk about, root for a winning team. Three and four against mostly bad competition. Expectation. Expectations met. Good for them. I think there were some very legitimate bright spots from that game. Stop it. No, of course there were. Pedersen played amazing. Of course there were. Pedersen played amazing. Yeah. And if you're seeing Pedersen was phenomenal. And if you're seeing more than that, you're stretching, and I hope you don't pull your hammy. Andre Kismanko had a hat trick. Yeah, that was the Pedersen line. Yeah. Okay. But it's Andre Kismanko too. I thought he the Bill really Horvat well. line played well. Not, no not at the top level, they but got well. Scrambled. They got scrambled. That tells you everything you need to know. They were Vancouver's worst forward line. No, they weren't. Yes, they were. No, they weren't. Yes, the Sheldon were. Dries line was their worst forward line. The Sheldon Dries line was absolutely their worst forward line. I mean, line. the at least at least I can't think of any significant scoring chances or defensive breakdowns when that line was on the ice. Here's the thing. I can with the Horvat line. You can talk about not lowering the bar. I get what you're saying. But I also, earlier this week, came on the show and ranted about how the Canucks had not sustained looking dangerous for like even a 10-minute stretch all season and how frustrating that was. They did it. Yeah, they did. So I did lower the bar, and hey, you can yell at me for that if you no, want, no. but I did lower the bar, and sure, it was just against the Ducks, and boy, that is an important caveat, because that is a, <laughs> woo, that's, that's a, a rough team. That, Dimitri that, called them unserious on our show yesterday, and like, wow. Might have been underselling it. But having said that, for this way, I'm willing to say you can only play who's in front of you, and at least for the last two periods... They completely dominated in terms of scoring chances, in terms of quality of chances. They did. There's no doubt about it. They did. I thought the second, I thought the analytics significantly overrated what the Canucks accomplished for much of the second period. But here's what, here's where I'll, uh, I'll at least grant you something. I'll grant you an inch, if not a mile. Having allowed that late goal in the second period to sort of restore a sense of suspense and a, and a little bit of a sky-is-falling sense around this team, which always looms mm -hmm. right now, right? The Canucks came out in the third period, 11-1 to one on the shot clock, 2 to nothing on the scoreboard. They took over the game, completely took over the game, and removed any doubt. Now, it became a one-goal game again because the Canucks can't kill a penalty. Mm -hmm. The, the Vancouver Canucks save a single or kill a single penalty challenge. 
Ducks were on an 0 for 25 streak coming into that game. <laughs> and then went two for three. And and the one that they didn't score on was a six on four, right? And and the clock expired on it, as opposed to the Canucks actually killing it off. I mean, you kill it off, but it wasn't a full two minutes. Uh Qualifiers must be made, is my point. 100%. And this text comes in, Jamie, it's the Ducks, and they gave up five. Are you kidding? LOL. I didn't say it was a masterpiece. I didn't say that was a championship-caliber performance from the Canucks. I said there were some bright spots. I and I know, said, man. and I said, all I, just, I said was that the one thing I highlighted earlier in the week that I hadn't seen from them, I saw from them. I completely agree with the caveat of the Ducks. I just thought your 2019 St. Louis Blues comparison was way <laughs> over the top, Jimmy. Team of destiny. And, and, like, I can't stand for that. And nor should our listeners. So text into the Dunbar lim- Lumber inbox <laughs> yes. and let Jamie know. I'm, that cl- I'm calling my shot his, right now. His comparisons of the Canucks to the 2019 Blues are way over the top. I do think, I, I do want to take a second, though, <laughs> just to um, just to talk, to, to throw a little dirt on the Anaheim Ducks. Because <laughs> that first period... And I think I, I can't remember. I think you said you even said this on the show, or we were talking after the show yesterday. But you said, you know, a, maybe a buddy had called you or something and was like, "Hey, I, I'm thinking of going to the game." And you were like, "Hey, this is a really good one to go to. It should be high scoring. It's BX tonight. All of that." Through the first period, I was like, "I'm going to rip Drance for that take because this is a tough watch. Like this is NHL hockey in in name only, only because it is technically taking place under the purview of NHL hockey. Does it qualify? Because that was." like sleepwalking through the game. Now, you can poke a lot of holes on both sides about the actual quality of the hockey play in the remaining two periods, but at least it was entertaining. But man, the last half was awesome. That Ducks team, you're telling me they couldn't qualify Sonny Milano to play on this team? Like, nope, sorry. We have a higher standard than that, Sonny Milano. Get out of here. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it was grim. They go out, they sign Klingberg, Strom, Vitrano in the summer. Collectively invisible. Collectively invisible last night. And those are all like decent hockey players. The Ducks are only interesting when Troy Terry and Trevor Zegras are on the ice. And they only really are interesting and were only really interesting last night when they were on the ice together. And the Ducks didn't go to it at any point at five on five. When you're that undermanned, just load up your top line and and hope that everyone else can kind of just hold serve. That's what I would have liked to see. The The only thing that wasn't as entertaining as I'd hoped for was... We didn't get to see Zegris and Terry together, and mm. Zegris and Terry were, you know, really the only players worth uh, paying attention to in Ducks colors last night, especially because it was such a tough game for Klingberg, who's really not put himself in a good spot nope. to rebuild his value here. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, a mess, a mess. Ill-prepared, ill-prepared, undermanned. Um, you know, I had people, I had former Panthers colleagues texting me and saying me saying this me stuff like we saw bad defensive coverage some years in Florida, but this is a different level. <laughs> I was laughing about it. I mean, they were yeah, it was tough, just woeful, just woeful. Yeah. But but you, again, you're right. You can only play the teams in front of you. The five point night from Pedersen was electric. We should talk about that because that he was he was phenomenal. And I mean, it's five points. It's the goal in front of the net. But yeah, it's the kick goal. Unbelievable. He was stuff. the best player in all three zones. Yeah, like, yeah. Un- undoubtedly in all three zones. And that was kind of by a mile. I don't want to say that was like, oh, it was Pedersen's best game ever or anything like that. Cause again, it's against the Ducks and we've seen him play, you know, really well against like the Blues and the Bubble and the K- and the Golden Knights in the Bubble, right? Like yeah. in- against actual talented competition and high stakes games. I, I still say his best game ever was the game he had zero points against the Golden Knights. It was a 2 1 win and both the Canucks' goals came with him as the screener. It's the most drance take I've ever heard. <laughs> well, it was an unbelievable <laughs> performance. 
<laughs> no, he was really good in that series. So I'm not going to sit here and like throw out those kind of superlatives. But I will say when we've talked about for so long the kind of theory of Elias Pettersson's ceiling and what that looks like and how it's not just about the offensive upside. It's about the ability to be a force all over the ice. That's what it looks like. Beyond the five points, that's what it looks like, right? Where he's making the key defensive plays. He's transitioning the puck. He's the guy setting up the chances for his teammates in the offensive zone. Like He's doing literally everything you could possibly want. Well, and Bruce Boudreaux bumps him up to first penalty kill and looks like at practice today, no Miller, no Horvat on the penalty kill units. Pedersen, Mikheyev as, as PK1. Hey, maybe this is step one, right? Like maybe this is Pedersen fixes or solves in, to some extent the Canucks uh, penalty kill. Uh, he definitely cleared. He got the clear on that shift, by the way. It was after the change that the Canucks surrendered that goal. That was one where they actually went 30 seconds without uh, getting scored on five on four. So... Uh, baby steps, baby steps. Yeah, he he remains. That might have been his most impressive contribution. He rem- <laughs> he remains the most like the most potent antidote to apathy about this team. And I'm not even really talking about like the long term because there's so much else going on long term with the Canucks. And hey, his contract status, yeah, including is up the, in the fact air. that he's yeah, not signed. All of that, right? I, I still think he's probably the best reason for hopefulness for the long term. Anyways, but I just mean like apathy in the here and now. We had somebody text in yesterday. Like, and not being sarcastic or glib or anything, but just like, seriously, hey guys, I'm a huge Canucks fan. I'm really struggling. Like, can you give me a reason to tune into the games right now? Well, it's Elias Pettersson. Like, that is the answer. If you are if you are trying to tap into something to avoid apathy about this team, it's the fact that you get to watch Elias Pettersson, and occasionally he's going to have games like he had last night. He, look, he's picking up where he left off last year. Again, I'm not going to say that was the best game of his career, but... To me, if you go back to the heater he was on last year that he's continued this season, it's the best stretch of hockey of his career. But the real reason is that this is what Canucks fandom is. It's not you don't become a Canucks fan because this is a dynasty. Like you're not you're not a new <laughs> you're not a front runner. I, I hate to break it to you, Canucks fans. You're not New England Patriots fans. You are not San Antonio Spurs fans. You are not Yankees fans. You are not um Manchester City fans, right? Like you're Tottenham Hotspurs fans. You are Chicago Cubs fans before they won the World Series, right? You are Sacramento Kings fans. <laughs> that's that's the team you support. So what's the reason to, to tune in? Because you're a Canucks fan. And the point of Canucks fandom is suffering collectively. And <laughs> that's the point. That's always been the point. I was a huge fan of the Chris Webber Kings, by the way. Oh, so sick. <laughs> White chocolate? Man, that team was great. <laughs> Even better with Bibby. Can't believe they didn't beat the uh, the Lakers in that oh, one. Anyways, I'm, a, I'm story team, for another. Day. I'm Team Ralph Nader. Anyway, um, <laughs> the the yeah, that's what Canucks fandom is. Like, what you don't need a reason beyond that. You're a Canucks fan. You were born into it, or you chose it, and this is this is what it is. This is for most of the last 52 years. This has been what it is, and at least we get to enjoy it together. At least we ha- get to have the fun esoteric arguments together. And at least on nights like yesterday where you're celebrating someone like Kevin Bieksa who comes in and just reflects, represents, pers- like humanizes, is the personification of what it can mean in this city, right? And how special it is when you have players who get how much it means in this city the way Bieksa does in this really unique and special way. It's not just that he gets it. There's been other guys that have gotten it. Most of that core group got it. It's that BX is the best at communicating it. Right, BX is the best at telling the story of that mm-hmm. group, which is why it was so moving 
to to see that clip of him addressing the team. Like even me, cynical, stone-hearted me, watches that video. I'm like, I could run through a wall. I'd storm a beach. <laughs> Let's go. That was amazing. And that's and that's the point. Like that's the point. Is you know the Joe Posnaski quote that I bring up sometimes, right? Baseball is boring until it's not. That's the magic of it, right? Canucks fandom is suffering until it's not. That's the magic of it. That's that's the that's the score. That's the deal. This text comes in, bro. I didn't pick this team. My dad likes them, and I was born here. Let's be real. That's from Keith. Oh, my da- my dad grew up. I, I grew up uh, with my dad being a Montreal Canadiens fan. But there was no way once I saw Pavel Bure play that I was gonna root for anyone else. Yeah, I mean that's basically. I'm, Is that a choice? I don't even think that's a choice. That's just like that guy's the fastest guy ever. Well, you grow He's up the fastest kid alive. Look, you grow up here, and yeah, I mean we're about the same age. Yeah, so you're and... seven or eight when '94 happens. Exactly. I, I got to go to game six of that series. Me too, and of the Rangers like, series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there I, you I, go. And it's like, well, this is awesome. My best memory, my best hockey memory ever is uh, I remember driving from the west end of downtown. We're, we're on Nelson Street. And my dad gives me what I refer to as the only time my dad actually gave me the talk. And the talk was not the birds and the bees or anything normal. It wasn't how to shave. <laughs> it, was, it was, if the Canucks lose tonight, we don't boo... We stay winning the Stanley Cup is a meaningful accomplishment that deserves respect. And so we stay, we watch, and we're respectful in honoring the accomplishment, even if it's those jerk rangers that manage to get it done. I'll always remember it. I don't, I don't ever think I've ever learned more about sportsmanship than I did on that car ride. There you go. Yeah. Shout out to Papa Drance. Yeah, killed it. Uh, speaking of great advice. Speaking of esoteric debates that we can have as uh, Canucks fans, this one came in also from Keith. Actually, now that I look at it, uh, Selkie or Art Ross? You have to bet on PD winning one in his career. Which do you pick, Art Ross? I'm going to go Selkie simply because Connor McDavid exists and plays yeah, in the it, league for sure. But at some point, you know, at some point um, injuries happen or what have you. I still think the Art Ross is more. In Pedersen's wheelhouse. Like, I mean, look at the production that he's had over the past, you know, 60 games. It's like 110-ish points. Yeah, it's not McDavid territory, but, I mean, is it McDavid territory if it, if for some reason he misses 30 games at some point? You know? I mean, look, winning the Art Ross is incredible. It doesn't happen, right? Like, it doesn't happen to a lot of guys. Everyone who wins the Art Ross is in the Hockey Hall of Fame, right? You have to be outrageously good. Outrageously good. You know that that again. That's what makes the to bring it all back because the thing I was so moved by yesterday was Biaxa. It was not the team's performance or the win. To me, that's sideshow stuff, right? The Biaxa culture tales, right? Biaxa's commentary is what stands out to me as like an attitude that whether whether you're a hockey team, whether you're like a business executive, whatever you do, like if you have that attitude you're always going to be able to accomplish stuff, right? Like there is a certain selflessness that if you have it consistently individually, you will be more successful professionally than someone who behaves selfishly. And if you're on a team or in a group of people who all function in that way, you're all going to get the best out of each other. You're all going to go on to do bigger and better things. I've been in groups like that. I've been part of groups like that. It's meant more to me than anything else in my career. And I've been in groups that aren't like that. And you know it. You know it immediately. Um, there's something universal about that that just really spoke to me yesterday. Genuinely. I think it spoke to a lot of Canucks fans. I mean, I think I, that video has a quarter million views on it. Uh, it's going to be the most watched Canucks TV video, I'd bet, of the year by a lot. Oh, yeah. 
and maybe and maybe of the decade. Um, and and it's for that reason. There's something true there. Um, what was I talking about? I had such a good point I wanted to make. The Art Ross and the Selkie, I believe. Okay. Which okay. I was I was kind of wondering how we got there myself. But okay. anyways, go ahead. BX is talking about the Twins. Okay, they won back to back Art Ross trophies. Right, five years before they won Art Ross trophies, people were still referring to them as busts. Right. I've been talking a lot to the Twins because the Hall of Fame induction is coming up and I'm working on a variety of pieces, right? And so I'll run a couple pieces as part of the NHL 100 series that, that we're running at The Athletic right now. And, you know, one thing, one thing about the Twins that's so striking to me is the way they worked on their game, right? The way they came into the league and they weren't ready physically and they knew they weren't ready physically. And... So there was a fitness routine that they had to build, right? They go out, they find this guy who I actually tracked down and spoke to. His name's Mats Erlinson. And he's a skating coach who's like one of the most eccentric people I've ever spoken <laughs> with on the phone. And he basically studied the science of movement, right? And found out that if you, you know, are leaning forward, like he's like, your body's lazy. Your body is naturally lazy. So when you skate, you hunch over and your, your body's cheating you. You actually have to assume an unnatural forward-facing position when you skate so that gravity will help move you forward. And the twins bought into this, right? This this completely odd sort of quirky skating instruction. And do you remember when the twins got a little faster and started tagging off the rush, how upright they were? Yeah. Do you remember how like odd their skating stri- they like that they relearned how to skate. They rebuilt their stride. And even then, even once they got dangerous off the rush, they were still losing puck battles. So there was all this work to, to up their core strength. Daniel Sedin told me they didn't have the fitness level to play their game shift after shift until 2009. 2009. And so over the course of, you know, five, six years, these guys go from being one thing to, and if you look from 2008 to 2012, right, all of a sudden these guys... Who, who would have been called, you know, draft busts as recently as 2006, three years prior, sort for those four NHL seasons, number one in scoring, only because he has a goals total edge over Henrik Sedin, Alex Ovechkin. Number two, Henrik Sedin. Number three, Marty St. Louis. Number four, Daniel Sedin. Right? Like, no, number five, Evgeny Malkin. Right, and this is and Crosby was obviously hurt for a lot of the stretch, so he doesn't appear. But if you go by points per game, he's pretty impressive too. The point being that like winning the Art Ross requires you to beat out a McDavid. It requires you to beat out an Ovechkin. It requires you. It requires you to beat out a Malkin. Like absolute behemoths, people who were famous at the age of fourteen. Right. It's unlikely, but I still think it's sort of a range and more in line with Pedersen's skills than him winning a Selkie, just based off of the profile that you need to have and how big a deal reputation plays well, in winning the Celtics. That's the question. It is it's it's so the subjective. most reputational award. It's so subjective. And once you get the reputation, you're probably going to be a contender for it every year, right? You're, or you're right. going to be right in that mix every year once you earn that reputation. It's just a question of do you break through and kind of crack the opinion barrier that a lot of people have to actually – for people to see you as a Selkie candidate. Right. It, it can happen. It's hard to do. I wouldn't put it past him. He's he's young enough. He's young enough that you know we could be talking about him in five years, the way we talked about Datsuk when he was in his late twenties. But I would bet that the point production, something we've seen, like we've seen him hit for long stretches of time now, 
you know, levels of point production that would be in the, you know, 100 plus. And once once you're there, all you need is, you know, one season where the power play really goes off or one of your line mates shoots at an elevated percentage. Like once you're in that range in terms of your top end fastball, which Pedersen, I think, already is, then then you've got a shot. But you're right. You probably do need a little bit of help. Reconner McDavid. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I mean guys, a supernova. We'll see. Like Connor Bedard's going to come into the league, right? Like, how how long is it before he's cracking a hundred points every year? Right? We don't know. Well, at least a couple of years. Statistical prime, Jamie. 21, 22, usually. Yeah. So that's like that's only a couple years away. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's but it's four years away. All right. Just well, we'll see. We'll uh, we'll we'll put a pin in that one and come back in four or five years to see <laughs> to see how it went. Sounds uh, good. We're going to talk to Jonathan Wall, of course, longtime former member of the Canucks front office. Up next, lots of texts coming in uh, as well about Andre Kuzmenko. We'll talk more about him, his future with the team as the show goes on. Dig more into the uh, the lineup shuffle that happened at practice today as well. But first, Jonathan Wall on Canucks talk here on Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We are now very pleased to be joined on the line. Uh, longtime former member of the Canucks front office. He is Jonathan Wall. Jonathan, thanks as always for giving us some time. How are you? My pleasure, guys. I'm doing great. Uh, so I wanted to start off the conversation. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you, you had a chance to tune in to see Kevin Biaxa be honored. Obviously, you were a part of the organization while he was there as well. What was what was your just kind of emotional, personal reaction to seeing him come back, sign the contract, and officially retire as a Canuck? Yeah, I mean, it was such a great time for, you know, for the team and for the organization, the city, but also personally, being a part of that group and, you know, spending so much time with all of those, those athletes um, and getting to know their families. And then personally, it was just a great sort of time to be a part of the organization. And it brought back a lot of memories, a lot of really, you know, really exciting memories, uh, you know, from, from where that team was. John, when you watched, you know, I don't know if you saw the BX clip from the locker room, but when you watched up close, the way that group worked, to level up how impressive was it how much has that stuck with you from your management career yeah I mean it's just you know so many things that you you saw and uh you know just just little things that you would see day to day and I, I was thinking about this a lot the last little bit and expecting you were going to ask and one of the things I remember and it's such a small thing and Thomas I know you traveled with an NHL team and I don't know if your team had a little kind of treat bin on the plane mm. but I remember yeah, yeah. like Sorry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ketchup chips I remember, on the Canadian trips were a highlight. It, exactly. I remember late one night, we were traveling back from somewhere. It was late, late, and the plane's dark, and I'm sort of half asleep, and I see Kevin walk over to the, the treat bin and sort of reach in and, and sort of touch a couple things and then end up taking an apple out of the bin and <laughs> and eating an apple. And I just remember being being struck by that, just saying, like, here's a guy who, you know, you know, you do the right thing when no one's watching. Like, no one's watching. No one would judge Kevin Bx if he grabbed a chocolate bar or a bag of chips or anything. But he was, um, you know, he, he grabbed an apple. 
And I think some people forget that, you know, the pro in a pro athlete is a profession, professional, and it's their job. And I think Kevin and that group brought this, this sense of, you know, let's get going, let's go to work, um, do what we need to do and, and work hard and get better. And I think they really, that always struck with me was just the, um, you know, the professional aspect of what they brought to the rink every day. What do you recall about BX in particular's role in sort of building that specifically? Because I think, you know, he would say, and he has said, right? It, it sort of starts with the twins, right? But how important is it to have guys like Bieksa who would sort of vouch for that, proselytize for it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was huge. Like Kevin, you know, he sort of also brought this sort of swagger to the group. And I think, you know, when he was out there, there was always this, you know, confidence that he brought. And it was, it was his personality, and you see it on TV now, and it still is his personality. But he had this sort of swagger that he always brought. And, you know, you know thinking about it, he had, I think he averaged, you know, four or five fights a year. But people remember them. Like, they were memorable and... Um, he just had a sense of, of what to do and when to do it. But it was this, again, this, this compete and this drive and, and just being a professional every day. And, um, you know, just as we brought different people into that group, we sort of built this, you know, that's what it was built upon was this professionalism and doing the right thing every day. And it, uh, the results obviously, you know, speak for themselves. Talking about that, that culture of accountability and, as you said, professionalism, competitiveness, how much of that can be fostered by the front office, the coaching staff, the organization as a whole, and how much of it just has to come kind of innately or develop by the players themselves? Well, I think, you know, I always, I always want to be careful when I'm speaking about stuff from the past that I'm not talking about what's going on today or anything like that. Like this, you know, I, I'm not around there. I don't live in Vancouver, so I don't really get a sense of what's going on there. But really, you know, I think management wants to show players that, you know, they're doing the right thing all the time and that they are going to be supported, whether it's with acquisitions or um, science or data or other things that they're going to do. So the players have this confidence that, you know, management is pulling on the same rope they are. And that, you know, if everyone's pulling in the same direction, you're, you're going to go far. But if people are just pulling a little bit off to the side, you sort of lose some of that, you know, that confidence that you're going to get where you want to get to. One of the things that uh, that Bieksa mentioned when he was speaking to the media yesterday was that even when veteran players who'd been around the league for a long time, when they would join the Canucks, whether you know by free be a free agency or, or trade, they would always comment on what a great culture it was and and what a positive environment it was after they joined the team. Was that something at the front office level that? you almost looked at it as an advantage you had when you were going out and bidding on players that you could kind of offer them this really positive professional uh, environment that you knew you had in the room? Well, absolutely. You had that, you know, you had, you know, players that were developing and that were moving ahead in their careers, which is something you sell. And then you had opportunity to win. So though, those things are, are huge for, you know, for players. And I know, you know, the summer, I think it was summer 2010, we signed, you know, Manny and uh, Dan Hamhuis and Rafi. And I mean, those were huge acquisitions for us that, you know, obviously led our team to, you know, to get to that next level. But those were all players who, who left money on the table or had other opportunities and really felt that Vancouver was the right fit for all those reasons. I want to talk about leaving money on the table because it wasn't much discussed yesterday as BXA was celebrated. And yet, you know, that deal he signs after the 2011 Stanley Cup final 
right? Is a mirror image deal uh, offered to another player who also sort of in his heart of hearts would have preferred to stay, but on different terms. Christian Erhoff's dealt, Kevin BX is retained. Like there was a moment where he chose to be a Vancouver Canuck. You're, you, you were a long time capologist, right? Your, your focus was often the cap. I'm curious to know, does contract slotting, right? How much guys make, uh, if they're slotted appropriately, uh, the decision collectively in, in a lot of cases to take less, does that trickle down in any way in your view and impact sort of some of the team environment things we're discussing? Well, I don't know if it affects a team environment, but it definitely trickles down. When you get someone at the top who is taking a, a certain certain amount, you sort of set that benchmark for the organization. And, you know, as you sort of slot people in, it's sort of hard to you know argue with where you get to. And, I mean, it's also a slightly different time, too, I think. You know, I don't know if there's that same, you know, thought process that goes on with the players. I feel, you know, the players are moved maybe more easily now or more regularly now. So maybe it's sort of a, a combination of factors that sort of lessen the impact of that. But it always was, again, it was that belief that we're, we're buying in together and we're going to do something special together. And, you know, the one thing to owner's credit, there really has never been a situation where anything that's left on the table has been saved. It's always been spent. So I think, you know, again, it's just a matter of knowing that the money is going to be, you know, it's going to be spent and you're going to make the team better all around. In conversation with Jonathan Wall here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, just looking at the the current situation with the Canucks from a salary cap perspective, one of the things they have right now is they have, they have three different players on LTIR. Now, obviously, you know, Michael Furland, that's one situation. Tucker Pullman, there's a little uncertainty there. But, you know, someone like Travis Dermott, might, his return might not be that far off. When you have that many players on LTIR, and they've also been kind of bringing in new acquisitions that, that add a salary cap to the picture, how complicated is it to manage the roster when, you know, all of a sudden a player might be coming off LTIR and it might get even more uh, complicated from a cap situation? Well, it is, and that's why, you know, the, the, the staff has to be in, in constant communication with the medical staff and the coaching staff, and everyone needs to be on the same page to know how to plan, plan for that. And you, you try to plan for every eventuality. I mean, these aren't linear. A lot of times these injuries aren't linear progressions. You know, you, you get going, get going, and then, you know, it looks like a player's ready to come back, and then they have a setback or something. So you try to, try to plan that. But, you know, where it does get even trickier is if you have players step up in the meantime, and all of a sudden a player has stepped up, played well, and you have a, a player coming back and you need to then either move a, a player out, move that player who's played well, move a different player out and find a way. I mean, when a player is ready to come back, you sort of need to bring them back. So you need to find a way to have that, to, to find that cap space. So um, it definitely is tricky, but it's a lot of communication and planning and, and sort of staying on top of everything that goes on. But also, you know, I, I never used to make decisions too early. Not myself as a group. We would we would try to wait a little bit. And by saying that is you don't know what could happen. So, you know, you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself sometimes as a player is tracking back to return because you don't want to make a decision and then they have a setback and you meanwhile have lost a player, say, on waivers or something when you didn't need to. Right. With I want to ask you, I want to switch gears just a little bit because – Around the league today, waivers were just posted. And um, Obe Kubel from the Toronto Maple Leafs was a key free agent signing for them. Uh, you know, relatively low cost because they're a complete cap team, right? But they've made the decision already, and that's pretty quick. 
right? What's your what what's the sort of process that happens when a front office makes a decision that hey, we we got it wrong this quickly? Like what what's that what are those conversations like um you know in a front office environment? Well, I think you know, we, we, we've talked about Toronto a lot on, you know, the different times I've been on, and I think they do a really good job trying to build as, as big a group as possible mm-hmm. with as much cap flexibility as possible. But they also, it feels like they don't really fall in love with players, that they are comfortable with having enough players around that if they need to move off a player, um, then they do. And they look at, I think, their signings as, a, as an organizational signing where if he does clear waivers, then you know he, he's an asset to the organization and can fill in. I mean, it's it is it is hard. You've got a lot of different dynamics at play. You've got coaches who, you know, maybe really like players more than management. You've got management who likes likes players more than coaches, and and then you've got players who just sort of come up and take other players' jobs. So it it is a bit of a da- dynamic you try to manage. And I think you know this is probably a player Toronto's hoping does get through the Marlies, and and they they have as a as a depth piece moving forward. Uh, just before we let you go here, Jonathan, one thing I wanted to ask, a you know, hot topic, certainly among our listeners after his hat trick last night, is the, the the future of Andre Kuzmenko, who, of course, signs the one-year entry-level deal because that's all he was uh, allowed to sign and is a pending unrestricted free agent. And, you know, I don't want to ask so much specifically about that player and how you'd evaluate him, but just in general, the process of evaluating players who don't have a lengthy track record and trying to decide, okay, what is this player worth? How much can we afford to pay them? How much risk are we going to take on uh, when, again, there's not so much of a track record? What's that process like for a front office? Well, I feel we're seeing around the league, teams are stepping up with players. And, and you know, immediately the first reaction people, people have, it seems to be, is, well, that was early, that was premature. Like they're taking a huge risk. But if you do it at the right time and the right amount, you are able to sort of share the risk between the player and, and the organization a little bit. Um, so I think, you know, you do try to, to try to assess what you have. Um, you know, again, the, the, the organizations generally have the most information about the players. They've seen their workouts. They've seen their off-ice habits. They've seen all of those things that maybe the public doesn't see. And it's really important to take those factors into consideration and, and make sure you're, you're extending and working with the, the right people. Um, you know, you've seen the results, but it, it's also making sure you're you're showing confidence and, and committing to the right people in the organization. Jonathan, always really appreciate the time. Thank you for the insight, and hopefully we'll chat again soon. All right, guys. Thank you. Have a good uh, rest of your day and a good weekend. Uh, you too. That is Jonathan Wall, again, former member of the Canucks front office, weighing in on, uh, first of all, his experience with the, the Kevin Bieksa era, uh, and, and that era of players and the, the culture and their development that they all displayed and also uh, some of the cap situations facing the Canucks and other teams around the league right now. And, yeah, we had a couple of questions come in about Andre Kuzmenko in the wake of his hat trick. Mark and White Rock says, uh, will the Canucks be able to re-sign Kuzmenko if he's a point-per-game guy? At what point do they start to include him in the core group to build around? And uh, Austin and Langley says, can you guys talk about what Kuzmenko's next contract looks like? Do the Canucks look at locking him up? We want to create cap space, but he looks pretty good with EP40. That The last part that Austin mentions there, not just in terms of Kuzmenko's contract, but also just evaluating his play, 
that's I don't even say the elephant in the room because I think everyone's aware about it and talking it about it. But he's been stapled to Elias Pettersson's wing. Elias Pettersson has been absolutely phenomenal. So you've got a kind of a difficult job of untangling. Okay, he's producing. How much of that is because he's on Elias Pettersson's wing, and how much of that is kind of the innate ability and talent of Andre Kuzmenko? Some of it, I think, is is obviously going to be. You know, you're going to produce riding shotgun with Elias Pettersson when he's going like this. You, you know, you can't ignore that. But I think Kuzmenko's been a boon to that line, to be totally honest with you. Like, I don't think he's a passenger. I, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I think his, I think he's just scratching the surface too, right? Like, the way that his, the way that his ability to fend off NHL level defenders, protect the puck. And do some dipsy doodly stuff down low. He had a spin pass uh, to to Quinn Hughes to set up a Quinn Hughes chance that was a uh, very very tough John Gibson save last night. That was a play like I've never seen. You know, like it was it was a spin pass and then he span ba- spun back the other way. So he almost went to do the classic Denny Savard, but then he stopped and spun back the other way and hit Hughes with a pass. Completely fooled everybody. I'd never seen a play like that. You know, that's rare. Like a, a rare play. That's a rare skill set that that Kuzmenko is working on. Now, you know, I think Kuzmenko's been a boon to that line. Uh, he is Pedersen's most common line mate, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Pedersen spent sixty six percent of his ice time <laughs> with um, with Kuzmenko to this point, and in the fifty minutes he spent away from Kuzmenko, he really has not been nearly as productive um, as he has been with. So, you know, I, I mean. To me, there's something going on there, right? The, it's small sample stuff. I'm, I'm not saying it's going to continue indefinitely, but I, I give Kuzmenko a fair bit of credit, especially over the last week, and especially because I now see him figuring things out. I now see the mind beginning to sort of click and recognize patterns at the NHL level and figure out what he can do and, and what he maybe can't and feel more confident in what he can do uh, than we saw certainly during the preseason when I wasn't particularly impressed. Um you know, now now I'm really seeing a guy who looks like he's on a pretty significant trajectory to become a really consistent attacking threat in the NHL. I mean, I'm even convinced that he should stay net front on the power play, which I was deeply skeptical of when the season opened. Uh, that backdoor chemistry that he's go- mm-hmm. got going with Elias Pettersson, that's a heck of a weapon and, for Vancouver's power play. And Ben's text in, all of, Kuzmenko's, all of Kuzmenko's goals have been deflections or tap-ins except for his hat-trick goal last night. Not saying he doesn't look good, though. He's been one of the only bright spots I've seen this season. I get the thing about, well, they're deflections and tap-ins. You also, there is a skill to getting open. And I'm not going to, like, look, I'm not going to say it's, oh, wow, he, <laughs> it's a phenomenal play to get open to tap that puck in. But still, there is a skill to getting open, to being in the right spot. I mean, deflection goals are high skill plays, certainly. And again, you have to be in the right spot in the middle of the ice uh, to score them. He scores the wrist shot, you know, uh, after a nice setup from Elias Pettersson to complete the hat trick. And I think something you and I talked about in the preseason and at training camp, Drancer, was the fact that his wrist shot looks better than advertised, right? Like, his he has it seems a lot of upside as a shooter that we haven't really seen. So yes, he's been scoring the tap-ins. You got to get to open to do that. And I still think he has more upside as a finisher. And if Elias Patterson keeps playing like this uh, and Kuzmenko keeps playing like this, he, the goal should continue to come. I think it's a really, I don't know. I have no idea when, when you're at this stage 
of the season and it's gone how it's gone for the Canucks and you have the Bo Horvat situation looming over you the decision of like what to do how much to offer Andre Kuzmenko on an extension it's a really really complicated and really difficult one well especially because you're still dealing with a very small sample right so exactly his, his individual point percentage is high at five on five right it's low overall but you'd expect that for for any net front guy right because there's going to be a lot of power play goals that a net front guy routinely doesn't touch is not involved in right because if you know if Bo Horvat's scoring unless it's the Miller Kuzmenko back to Horvat quick play right if Bo Horvat's scoring often it'll be you know Pedersen to Hughes Bo Horvat deflection or Hughes to Miller direct to Bo Horvat right or a PD shot rebound Bo Horvat from Hughes or Miller right like that's that I mean just think about the dynamics of how the five uh five on four works and and you'll understand that high IPP at five on five, not an elevated shooting percentage at five on five, but nineteen percent overall. That's probably a little overheated. Yep. On ice saving, on, on ice shooting percentage is actually totally normal. We might actually expect him to score at a higher rate five on five in, in terms of what the Canucks generate with him on the ice, not his individual. And goals. I think that matches the eye test of what we've seen from the Pedersen Kuzmenko pairing. Yeah, they've that actually been chances, unlucky. Yeah, there's chances that have been. Left wanted for yeah. sure. They've actually been unlucky, and they've been really unlucky in terms of the goaltending behind them, right? I, I mean, Kuzmenko's been on the ice for eight goals for, eight goals against, but he has a 95 PDO, <laughs> like an 850 save percentage. Once that normalizes, and it will, especially with Martin and Demko uh, between the pipes, you know, the Canucks are going to significantly outscore their opponents with Kuzmenko on the ice so long as he maintains this form, which I'd bet he will. I like him a lot. Now, can the Canucks afford to extend Kuzmenko? Yes. Okay? I want to say this right now, unequivocally, yes. I think when people were trying to discuss this club's cap issues four or five years ago, sometimes the discussions got bogged down or squirreled by the fact that people would overstate things or, or like, there'd be concern, like, the Canucks can't afford to keep Pedersen. Yeah, or, Listen, like, when Besser was an RFA, it was like, they're not going to be able to sign him. It was like, they're 100% going to be able to sign him. You never, lose, you never lose your really good players. You can always afford to, to keep your really, really good players, okay? It's about what other options you have. It's about the flexibility to add more. Right, it's it's about the ability to seize on opportunities. Like that's what's squandered when you commit bad money. Um, the Canucks, assuming the cap goes up by the NHL's projected four million, do I have to bring it up that I'm fading the NHL's projections again? You may as well be consistent. Okay. I I like to do it. I like to think there's one person out there that's like listening, and the one time you don't say that you're fading it, they're gonna like hold it against you forever. Well, it, you know what I mean? I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that. It's that people always get in to my mentions or into our inbox and say, guys, don't even worry about it. The cap's going up by 4 million. And it's like, A, maybe not. B, that doesn't actually help the Canucks because it helps all of their opponents as well, right? It's not It's not like, it's not like the Canucks' mistakes go away because they have 4 million in cap space. In a world where everyone gets 4 million more cap space, the advantage that the Canucks get is real. It's just that the advantage that teams with more efficient contracts get is sharper and that diminishes the edge anyway that's why i always bring it up four million fading that as a projection but say it goes up to four million i'm looking at the canucks having about 15 and a half at the moment that's sort of how i project it in meaningful cap space but that's with dermot on our appending rfa that's with ethan bear appending rfa that's with niels hoaglander appending rfa that's with andre kuzmenko appending ufa 
That's with Bo Horvat, a pending UFA, right? And also Shannon Burroughs. And now I bring up Shannon Burroughs and you're like, who cares? Maybe. I don't know. I care. But maybe you don't. Here's the problem. I've listed all of those players. Only only two of them, really, in Dermot and Bear, are RD, right? When this When those deals all expire, the Canucks will have the following right-handed defenseman, already a weakness on this team, signed for next season. Myers, Tucker Pullman. Uh, end of list. So you have $15.5 million in cap space. You have a defense core that I think we all can agree needs significant renovation, significant work. And for the most part, the guys who are going to be most difficult to sign are guys like Horvat and Kuzmenko. How much of that 15.5 can you responsibly allocate to more forwards when, I mean, look at the Canucks practice lines today. You've got Garland and Besser switching off on the third line. You've got Pod Colson switching off with, um, was it Joshua? Yes. On the fourth line. So, like, there's a real chance that Besser and Pod Colson don't play uh, when the Canucks host Nashville on Saturday. And a real chance that when the club goes to Ottawa, we're, we might see, like, Besser draw back in the lineup and Garland be a healthy scratch for a second game. We might see Pod Colson be a healthy scratch next game. Like, at, at some point... Don't you have to rationalize this team's allocation? Like, there's way too much money spent on forwards like Horvat and Kuzmenko. Well, especially forwards that don't move the needle on the penalty kill. Or defensively at all. Uh, Horvat kind of Horvat does. does. Horvat does. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like, so yeah, I mean, the question isn't can they afford to s- extend both guys? They can do both. They, they, they could do both and take six million more. They could carve out additional cap space. It might cost them picks to do it. But there's other ways to carve out cap space. You'd like to see them do it before committing some of this money, right? You'd like to see them not just be like, trust us, we'll carve out space. Like, well, you didn't this summer. We would have loved to see it. So, yeah, they can afford to do these deals. It's just whether or not it makes hockey sense. And and I think there's a real case to be made that until this team clears space up front, they need to be really, really careful, even though two of their most – I mean, this this team, right? This team, their three most productive forwards in the early going, all expire by the end of the twenty twenty four season. They're they're both. I said this about Horvat, but now you can add Kuzmenko, right? Yeah, they've like, locked up all these guys. They're, they're simultaneously really struggling, and their two pending UFAs are like lighting the world on fire now. And, and the guy they unwisely bridged, right? So I mean, I mean that's that just sort of compounds it. Like, yay, Canucks win eight five. Like, oh no, all the guys who benefit the most financially from that are expiring in the next 18 months. Now let's just say they let's say Brutal. they extended Horvat. We'll take a break here in a second, but let's say they extended Horvat and Kuzmenko. Just by my count, forwards they would have making more than 3 million last year would be 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8. You would have eight forwards on the books for more than $3 million in salary next year. Right now one of those is Tanner Pearson, maybe you can find a way to get off that, but like that's a lot of money committed at forward for a group that has not has shown not only not shown to be more than the sum of its parts has shown to be less than the sum of its parts right now and well and and Kuzmenko say he keeps up this pace right so he's a 44 to 45 point 27 year old winger who's right-handed with significant power play utility at the net front as a net front playmaker right a pretty rare profile right there um, yeah, that's a $4 million player. Yeah. 
Straight up. That, you are, and you already have a bunch of $4 million plus players. And, and can maybe beat it. Right? Like, that's at least a $4 million player, especially if the cap goes up, you know, even three, two and a half. So, yeah, it's going to get tight. It's Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. We'll continue the conversation, uh, tell you about how the Canucks lined up at practice, some of the tweaks they made to the lineup, what it might mean for the game against Nashville. Hear from head coach Bruce Boudreaux as well. That's coming up next on Canucks talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Friday edition here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I would say a lively discussion and conversation going on in the 650-650 uh, Dunbar Lumber text line. Feel free to join it. I do want to, uh, we're going to hear from Bruce Boudreaux here momentarily. The Canucks practiced today after they beat Anaheim last night. Of course, they play Nashville again at Rogers Arena tomorrow night. And they're one of those great like hockey cliches, old school hockey wisdoms is, you know, Never change your lines. Never change your lineup after a win. Bruce Boudreaux does not appear to be a fan of that uh, of that adage. Because I love that. First of all, yes, if something like if you play really bad and you win, don't be afraid of making changes. But he did it after the back to back wins uh, against Pittsburgh and Seattle. Drew a lot of heat from our listeners and our texters for it. They win last night, and he's not afraid to make changes this morning at practice. So Boudreaux I'll- Boudreaux rocks for certain stuff. I mean, I, I think he rocks generally, just like as a coach and as a person, but he really rocks for the way that he breaks certain hockey orthodoxies. He rocks because he's aggressive in all phases. He rocks because he will pull the goalies early, right? And he rocks because he doesn't care about whether or not they won. He'll make changes if he didn't like how a line went. I think I think all of those things are straight up cool. So we'll run through. I mean, Bruce Boudreaux is awesome. I'm yeah. not even gonna say like that's good or like anything. It's just cool. I just like it. It's just it's wicked. There is a reason. There's a reason the fans chant his name yeah. at the games. It's gnarly man. He's awesome. It's gnarly. Yeah, it's very sweet. It's tubular. Um, <laughs> We're just naming uh, level names from that one Mario world. Oh, Super I was gonna Mario say world like world uh, I think of all those as like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle words. Oh like, yeah, tubular is very a very Teenage Mutant Ninja I, Turtle. I, word I, my my ne- my nephew got super into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the video game recently. Uh-huh. And I was, like, thinking about how, for me, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was, like, a gateway into learning about, like, Renaissance art. Okay. Yes, of course. So I'm, like, trying to get him to learn the names of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh But he's just, like, the orange one. Purple. Yeah, purple. I'm, like, no, Donatello, named after a sculptor. (laughs) It was a very weird conversation with a (laughs) seven-year-old. Well, good luck with that, Dred. Yeah. Uh, I'll run through the lines, the updated lines from practice, <laughs> and then we'll hear from Boudreaux, and then we can dissect it and get into it. Uh, so, on the first line, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, and Niels Hoaglander, who, of course, was a healthy scratch, gets the bump from the press box all the way to the first line. Patterson, Mikheyev, Kuzmenko stay together. Sheldon Dries, Tanner Pearson, and it was Connor Garland and Brock Besser rotating uh, on the wing on that line. And then the fourth line, Niels Amon, Jack Studnika, uh, and Dakota Joshua and Vasily Podkolzin. Defense pairs, 
remain the same. Lots to discuss, lots to digest there. But first, here is the head coach, Bruce Boudreaux. No, it's, you know what? I mean, it's a work in progress. I mean, uh, uh, trying new guys on it, you know, and seeing if they get the concept of what we're trying to do. And, and then the concept isn't, uh, we're not trying to um, do something different. We look at the best penalty killing teams and over the last five years and see what they do. And, you know, we, what we did last year, it's basically the same teaching and it's just not uh, going the way we want it to go right now. Luckily, the power play has kind of helped out and negate the penalty yeah. this one. Yeah, I mean, it has. I mean, it's uh, it was a strength of ours last year, and it's going to be a strength of ours this year. So, I mean, uh, hopefully we can continue that and get the other thing better. And then I think uh, uh, five on five, we're pretty equal with everybody we play, so it's uh, it, it should be okay. Or you, or you could just get the power play to 40, and then it would still be 100. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about um, is there something in particular about him being a Russian player, something about the way Russian players are trained that makes him such a good possession player? I don't know. I don't know how they teach their kids. You know, I mean, uh, but you look at uh, all the real uh, Russian good players, you know, the Panarins, the uh, the one guy I had in Washington, uh, you know, and, and Kuzmenko, they're so skilled with the puck. They, they see the ice uh, so well. I don't know if in North America we focus too too much early on winning and not enough on skills i i you know past the the minor hockey stage so it's uh, i don't know but i mean he is pretty skilled when you get him from the blue line in um he, you know he's uh, he's a pretty good player you mentioned how skilled he is but also five of his six goals have either been uh, backdoor tap-ins right by the blue paint um and the other two have been uh, tip-ins have you been surprised by how well he's been able to find open ice in the hard areas? That's a skill. It's just as much a skill as stick handling as finding open areas. I mean, all the great, great players, I mean, they look to find that open space so they can give them the puck that be in a position to, to, to score. So, I mean, uh, that's not luck by any chance. That's reading the play, having good vision, doing that sort of thing and, and finding that area. I'm hopeful of having Brock back. I I don't think so. Um, it's a day to day thing, and but I mean I haven't obviously chatted with any of the doctors yet or anything. But to see, I mean he's been off the ice for a while now. It's uh, but we'll we'll see what they say and we'll see how he feels. Do you think the PK is eating it away at some guys? I you know my experience, a lot of those guys take as much pride in killing a penalty, scoring a goal, if that's their... 100%. 100% it's eating away at the, the guys because they know they're better at it than, than what it's shown. And uh, uh, we're trying to find different ways to drill holes in walls. <laughs> um, I'll wait a second. Good sentence like that? <laughs> I like it when C-Mac gets mad. <laughs> but... Um, uh, uh, where was I? Sorry. Just about the pride that guys yeah, take. Yeah, they, they take so much pride in it. I mean, and it's it's the defenders uh, take pride in defending. You know, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you have a role to play. You're being put out in a situation that coaches and teams are depending on you. And when it's not going right, and you're also knowing that the whole world, hockey world, is looking at the numbers and everything. And uh, uh, we all have pride from coaches down. I mean, we hate to see it. We want to see our numbers up at the top everywhere all the time. So I know uh, 
uh, <clears throat> Mike works on this eight hours a day, and uh, uh, sometimes you have to build him up because he's he's taken he's taken takes so much pride in in doing this and talking to players and everything. And when it's not working, you know he blames himself, and uh, that's not the right thing to do. How, how much of this would, could be helped if you won more faceoffs? Bo's the only guy who wins any faceoffs shorthanded so far. You're right. And I mean, it's all part of it. I mean, and and almost every team, almost every team uh, that we've played so far uh, on the power play starts on the left side or Bo's forehand side, which is never your strength. It's always your backhand side. So I mean, it's a it's a tougher scenario, um, which is why we start with the puck on the power play an awful lot because it's his strength when you go to your backhand. Um, so it's a uh, um, uh, I don't even know where I was, but yeah. it's, you know. Well, just, it seems to make the, the PK a lot harder, obviously, when the other team, if the other team starts with the puck. Every if day. you can get the puck down the ice right off the bat and you take that 20 seconds, but the it's more important than the 20 seconds that it takes to go get it. It's, it's uh, we accomplished this. Mm-hmm. We get them to clear it one more time, and then all of a sudden now all, we're changing and the other team's getting frustrated because they can't get in. Nobody likes to go back and retrieve pucks two, three, four times during a power play, and it builds momentum for the, uh, for the team that's killing penalties, and it takes it away from the team that is supposedly trying to get the momentum because they're on the power play. Pardon me? Um, he's getting better. That's, I think he's going to make the trip with us. It's a possibility. They were talking about him making the trip with us, and if that's the case, then that's great. Chris, what about Sheldon Drive? Seems like he gets an opportunity to play with some pretty skilled wingers at times when he's here in the lineup. What do you like about what he does at 5 on 5? Well, he's responsible, you know, and that's the biggest thing. I mean, uh, um, he scored 40 in the American League, and, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart that uh, for guys that can score in the American League, but uh, uh, he's a smart player and I can put him in situations that, uh, uh, that I, I can count on him. I mean, he played in almost all the preseason games, but I mean, I would use him a lot because I trusted him and uh, that's why he's here right now. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux cracking jokes about the construction at Rogers Arena in between uh, giving us his well, comments and but, thoughts. But what can you do but laugh? Yeah, I mean, he's great. We're, no, no, we're a month into the season. If if you weren't going to have renovations be done by now, and I know that supply chain stuff is difficult if you're building a house or doing anything right now, but if you're not going to have your facility done a month into the season, you probably should have waited till next summer. Gather the materials and wait. Uh, Boudreau and I also have... Not, uh, not because of the media conference, by the way. Just because it's been so disruptive, and this team's off to such a bad start. Boudreau and I also have... But uh, that's a glimpse into it for the audience. I'm sorry, I'm not moving on from this subject. We, we have we, it needs to be noted. We have something in common, which is uh, enjoying annoying C-Mac. So. <laughs> yeah, well, but that, but that's, not, it's, that's not on C-Mac. Like, there's oh, nothing C-Mac not. can do. Of course not. Uh, anyways, that is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau. Uh, a lot of that focused on the penalty kill. Understandably so, because the numbers, once again, historically bad to start the year uh, when they're down a man for the Canucks to give up the two goals to the Anaheim Ducks. And, you know, Boudreaux talked about how, look, the other team gets to choose what side the faceoff goes on. They're always going to put Bo Horvat at the disadvantage. He's also their best faceoff guy. That puts them at a real disadvantage. Now, having said that, they did practice the penalty kill uh, today. 
no Horvat, no Miller involved. So the first kind of unit, the first forward duo was Pedersen and Mikheyev. After that, you had Niels Amon and Tanner Pearson. Uh, and then you had Jack Stanika and Dakota Joshua as the third duo. And look, I mean, it's pretty tough to argue with removing JT Miller and Bo Horvat from penalty killing duties right now, given how atrocious the results have been for this team. They've been so bad. So bad. And again, this is one where if you really want to understand just how bad the Canucks have been killing penalties, you kind of have to go beyond the surface stats. I mean, the 57.6% kill rate is bad. But the next closest... The is next, that bad? It's really is that, bad. Is that bad? Yeah. Ugly. The next closest team, though, is the Anaheim Ducks at 61.5%. And that looks like, hey, you know, you kill a few, you could catch the Anaheim Ducks. Here's the thing about the Anaheim Ducks versus the Vancouver Canucks. Okay, ready? The Canucks have surrendered 14 shorthanded goals this season. The Anaheim Ducks have surrendered 15. So they're actually one goal worse. Here's the thing. The Ducks have spent 17 more minutes on the penalty kill than the Vancouver Canucks have. So if you go on a per hour rate, okay, the Canucks are the worst, most permissive, shorthanded team in the NHL right now, surrendering over 20 goals per hour in shorthanded situations to this point in the season. The next worst team is... Is it Anaheim? It's Anaheim. And they're at about 15 goals per hour. So, in terms of the rate at which goals are going in against Vancouver's penalty kill through the first three weeks of the season, the Canucks aren't just the worst. They're worst by about a 33% margin worse than the next worst team, which is Anaheim, and we saw Anaheim play yesterday. That's bad. It's really bad, Jamie. It's really, like... Like, I don't know what else to say about it's it. It's kind of inexplicable because you can say, well, you know, they don't have a lot of good penalty killers. Sure. Okay. They don't have a lot of guys who are like penalty killing specialists. But is this really the worst penalty killing personnel ever assembled in the NHL? Like, I don't think so. I don't think it's actually that bad. And yet when you go into the results, it's like, well, what, are, what the heck? What do you mean? No, like worst ever. Well, they're not the they're not going to finish the season as the worst ever. They didn't finish the season last year as the worst ever, right? They're they're going to be, you know, 70%. But we knew, we knew that they were going to be at best average, no? Sure, at best average, but yeah. it's like there's that a, is, there are a far far cry from average right now. Where do you watch the Canucks play though and see like high-end two-way IQ ever? Patterson. You know like Pedersen who, who doesn't win draws, right? I mean, he he's working on it. It matters a lot to him. He's improved a lot, but it's not like he's an ace, right? So, you know, and, and Bruce Boudreaux is the second coach the second year in a row. Early in the season as the penalty kill is struggling to bring up the lack of a right-handed centerman. Now, he didn't do it as directly as Travis Green might have, but, you know, the thing is a lot of those draws, they start on the left side and that puts Bo Horvat on his forehand, Right. What what would it be would be nice to have a righty for for those faceoff winning situations. His team doesn't, so there's an elementary construction issue at play here, right? What was Bruce's first commentary after the Stadnika trade? We need a right-handed center. We need a right-handed center. You know, like this isn't mysterious stuff. This is meat and potato stuff. I, I I don't know what else to say. Like it's an obvious construction flaw. They brought Lazar in. He struggled in that spot, and now he's out of the lineup, and now they, you know, I mean, they're losing draws there. They don't really have high-end defensive personnel up front. 
They don't really have high-end two-way intelligence on the back end. There's guys like Luke Shen who should be able to contribute like meaningfully on a good penalty kill. But, I mean, even then, you want him over the board second, I think, you know, relative to relative to some of the other guys that play the most shorthanded minutes in the league. You know, you think about the Boston Bruins as number one. Well, that's Patrice Bergeron, right? You even think about the San Jose Sharks as, as number two, which is surprising. But But is it? You know, you're able to throw Vlasic out there. You're able to throw Logan Couture, right? Logan Couture is an, a, a heck of a two-way player. Probably the most developed two-way center we've seen under the age of 22 come into the league in the last 15 years. Like, Logan Couture came into the league and was, like, immediately a stud defensive center. It was wild. I, I Honestly, I don't know that we've ever seen anyone else do that. That's how special Couture was. The New York Islanders are third. That makes sense, right? Guys like Sezikis. Ton of, ton of, you know, two-way heft. Adam Pellick, one of the smartest defensive uh, defenders in hockey. Right? I mean, it makes sense. Nico Heischer for the Devils. Yeah. Right? Radic Faxa for the Dallas Stars. Like, you go down the list, right? All of these guys, all of these teams that are killing penalties reliably. Nashville Predators, Ryan McDonough, Ryan Johansson. Right? Like, it makes sense. You, It makes sense. And then you get to the Canucks, and it's like, well, they're trying Pedersen and Mikhaev there. Okay. Their best penalty killer is probably a winger. That's probably part of the problem. They're crying out for a a third line center, ideally right-handed, who can be an ace penalty killer and handle really tough defensive matchups at a five on five. Like that is, it's it, we talk about the defense a lot and the need to generate more offense, ability to move the puck, two way intelligence, all of that. But the more I watch the team this year, it's like. I don't want to say it's more important than the defensive issues, but it is really, really glaring. And look, they've tried they tried to address it with Jason Dickinson. Didn't work out. He's a lefty also, so it wouldn't have covered that side of things. But man, if you could have Miller on Horvat's wing and Patterson as your first line center, you give those guys more offensive opportunities, you'd reduce their load on the penalty kill because they're not getting the job done there because you have that third line center. I think it would make a world of difference. But it's just another of those you don't put it on the to-do list that's really hard to accomplish if you don't have those guys developing in your system and you don't have the cap space to go out and acquire them. Well, you, you've also built a team. I mean, look at the practice lines today, right? Look at the practice lines today. What's the biggest, most obvious gaping hole that even Boudreaux was asked about and was like, ah, I love AHL guys who score. Yeah, Sheldon drives the third line center. Okay. So this team is built with a surplus of wingers in part because clearly there was this belief that they had three centermen that they could count on down the line. Now one of them's already moved to wing, right? And and so you've got this gaping hole there and no real candidates to fill. Like, does Lazar just go into that spot when he gets back? Is that the ideal spot for Curtis Lazar to play in? You know, I mean, and then what happens if you don't extend Horvat? And can you even extend Horvat considering how this team's performed? Like, can you really sink that amount of money and, com- and cap space committed for that many years into a group that's accomplished nothing? But the flip side is, can you... Can you not extend him? No, you can't afford to. You can't afford to lose him. You can't afford to keep him. You're not positioned to do either credibly. Right? You know, this is this is why this is why I just can't stop getting on and getting mad every show we do. Just because you know, even the good things, even the good things have a negative twist, and it's not me being negative. It's there. You just read it. Producer Dom is shrugging at me. He's suggesting that I am being negative, but I'm not. I would love to not be. Uh, this text comes in. Do you think it's a real possibility that they try to ship out a skilled winger for a right-handed third-line center? 
you can try. I mean, you're, I'm sure they're looking around. I'm sure if something like that became available, they would be very, very interested. The problem is, and this is the problem with being overloaded on the wings and having those be your best young players, your best prospects, a lot of your best players on your roster, you're always going to take a talent hit when you trade a wing for either a center or a defenseman because they have less positional value than those than those other two positions, right? Like, so if you're trying to get that that third line center, I mean, like I always come back you, you to the Hall for Larson swap, right? You can't move them at all right now, right? Like the the way the market is, you literally cannot move expensive wingers for anything close to what you'd consider fair, fair value. And and frankly, in season, there's only like seven teams with enough cap space to eat some of the contracts that Canucks fans text us in sometimes and would like to see moved, right? I mean, you know, say you're texting in and are bringing up the name Brock Besser, which, by the way, I'm not, I'm, I don't know how many more times I have to say this, but you're wrong. Besser's going to be good once he gets back in the lineup. Guy's been guy rushed back from surgery, plays six games, on like a second line, gets zero PP one time, and has four points in six games, then the complicated injury that he rushed back from, and which, by the way, requires an incredible pain tolerance to even play through, um, sort of is aggravated, and then people are down on him? Like, what did he? I just don't, I will never, I will never grasp the Besser skepticism, and I promise you that this is like me insisting that Miller is sen- a, a winger while he's going off on a 99-point thing. Like, just wait. I'm going to be right on this one eventually. Besser's really good. But say you're bringing up Brock Besser to me. Do you know how many teams in the NHL have the cap space to just just trade for Brock Besser's contract today? Do you know how many? Five. Three. Anaheim? Arizona. Well, Anaheim could use him. <laughs> Arizona? Arizona could not. They do not want him. Well, they could. They don't want to. Eh. They have zero interest in it. Eh. Maybe. Maybe they wouldn't. And Buffalo. That's it. Three. Three. And only one of them could you see being a motivated buyer. And let let me be real with you. If Buffalo's a good team with $18 million in cap space, they're going to be able to add and improve so significantly if they decide to at any point. Right? Like, you want to you look at a team that's going to be poised to get the next Devon Taves? It's them. It's them. Should we go to break? <laughs> uh, we'll have an update on. Uh, I, I didn't know you were done there. I thought I, I thought you were gonna put a bow on it uh, at the end. I mean, I could have. I just figured, you know what? Like people are people are sick of me. <laughs> it's the weekend. Let's just go to break. That's never stopped you before. <laughs> don't, don't, don't let it stop you now, transfer. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, Jamie, and I hate to admit this, you have got me. We'll uh, we'll give everyone five minutes to uh, to I don't know, like reload their their capacity for listening to Drance. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's going to do it, but we'll give you all a quick break. Uh, We'll get a quick update on Brock Besser's status. You alluded to it, uh, but we'll hear from Besser himself. Uh, Talk a little bit more. We didn't get a chance to really dive into uh, some of the shakeups at forward there as well. So we'll talk more about that when we come back. Final segment of the week coming up uh, here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. It is the final segment of the week. So I hope you're not sick of listening to Drance because we got one more segment. One more segment. And then you're free until Monday. I say as if you're like mandated to listen to the show. 
<laughs> like Clockwork Orange, like yeah. conditioning stint. Like, oh my goodness, that would be brutal. Like we're downloading it onto your phone, like Apple did the the, U, the U2 album. <laughs> Everyone gets it, no matter what you want. Here you go. Uh, get your text in. If you got any questions? People are people are angry. We're playing your... Beethoven. We're playing Beethoven over my voice and like signs of destruction. And then fans are just like rebuild, rebuild, the, rebuild. The Louis Erickson own goal. And... <laughs> yeah, just all the all the tough moments. <laughs> Some Lucas Pisa giveaways. Um, people are fired up about people the are Besser angry takes. that you said nice things about Brock Besser. I always like to imagine. I made this point. It was the day we had Brock. Uh, the day we had Jeff Merrick on the show, right? Like. The arc of every young player in a Canadian market is beloved in their rookie season and probably through their ELC. Oh, I love this take you're about to. And unfurl. then it like inevitably transforms into sourness and nitpicking and anger once they actually are making some money. Like it happens like clockwork. Look at like the Mitch Marner conversation. Oh, I know, I know. In Toronto right now. You become the guy who can't win and then you stick around long enough. And you become like a legend of the game, and you become yeah, bulletproof. you become a beloved veteran. Yeah, you become bulletproof. It's a really interesting dynamic. Have you ever heard uh, John Mulaney does this thing about how the New York Post refers to uh, like like um, their hierarchy of morality and like the ultimate morality is like babies, <laughs> and that's like all prospects can do no wrong. They're just completely unfettered hope. They're right? innocent. They're pure. Yeah. And then, and if then, they, if they're not playing well, it's because the team's not developing them properly. Like, why won't the coach give them more minutes? And then, and then you become the overpaid veteran, and you're like the creep. <laughs> it's, uh, it's truly, it's truly a wild, wild arc that players go through. I just like to imagine traveling back in time to like fall or fall 2017, winter 2018, and like four telling people four years from now saying nice things about Brock Besser on the radio will drive people insane they'll hate it how dare you say anything nice about Brock well, Besser uh, there's also this like um thing that happens where people get like blame players for injuries you know it's like oh man he's like he he rushed back from surgery to play for your favorite team and played through pain like what a jerk <laughs> I, don't, I just I'll never understand it I'll never understand it by Here's, the way, here, hold I'll, on, hold on. One last thing on Besser. Oh, I have more, oh, way yeah, more to I say just about wanna, I just want to throw this out there. He leads, now it's small sample size. Okay, he's only played six games. Per minute, per 60 minute, five on five scoring, Brock Besser, ahead of Elias Patterson. Yeah, playing. He leads play, the Canucks. Playing on lines that never worked. Like, he was playing on those lines that just didn't work, couldn't get the puck moving in the right direction. Uh, it, you know, so anyway, here's the other thing about Besser. I want to relitigate. His entire how this entire thing is unfolded, because when I talk about some of the contract decisions, contractual decisions, uh, and I'm critical of some of the work that management did last summer, I, I like prominently excluded from that is the Brock Besser deal. Mm. Prominently, and here's why: Besser had a 7.5 million dollar QO. Right, the club wasn't going to qualify him at that level. They played their hand really well in terms of threatening the arbitration path but never actually having to go down it right and they hammered out a compromise deal that i think was a pretty good outcome considering the leverage that besser had in the situation and that the alternative was either an arbitration award which would have lasted one year and seen the team's leverage diminish severely only to have the player ultimately walk right like the most you could have diminished his salary by was like 400 500k anyway he'd still be a seven ish million dollar player 
very, very little trade value even on an expiring, right? Or he was going to be a $7.5 million player if you qualified. Similar boat, right? Besser's too good to lose for nothing. The only way to manage this asset was to come to a compromise agreement, and, and the compromise agreement that they came to made perfect sense. The only the only thing that I would you know have probably seen them do otherwise w- would be to have some bonuses in it, so that it was like a front loaded deal, which reduced the the cash spend on the back end to make him easier to flip. If that's ultimately where this is going, and ultimately I think every move that the Canucks are doing at this point should be done with like a how do we create long term value perspective just because that's my view of where the organization's positioned I don't think it's where their view of where the organization is positioned is so you know that's just a difference of opinion more than it is like uh, something I'd call a mistake they pulled something out of the fire with the Besser deal truly it was good work it was the best of a bad set of options that outcome Besser's gotten hurt but he's actually been productive when he's been in the lineup this guy remains what he's 24 still 25? No, he'd be 25, I believe. Hold on. Well, it depends. Yeah, on yeah. Look it is. up. Let's look it up. Let's be accurate. Let's look it up. I don't like to be accurate, he's, but let's do he's it. He's 25. 25. So he's 25. So he's still got two years left in his statistical prime because he's a uh, February birthday. Okay? Two years left in his statistical prime. This is a guy who's got 260 points over 330 games. Super productive. Excellent battle winner along the wall. Excellent shooter. Has become a really good playmaker. And can play in multiple spots on the power play. Bumper, net front, he's become really good at the net front. And and on the half wall, though I personally like him a little better on his strong side than than on his one-timer side. Which you're never going to do because that's where Pedersen stands. And, <laughs> and, and should. So, there's a lot that Besser brings. And people just want to see the speed. People just want to point out what he can't do. It's, it's wild to me. I, I really think... The misevaluation on Besser in this market has reached a fever pitch that is, you know, like, it's not just a fever pitch, it's a fever dream. This is a really good, productive young player who's been productive every time he's been healthy. He's had some durability issues, most of them bad luck, most of them unrelated to to previous issues, right? I'd still push back on the idea that he's going to continue to be injury prone. Uh, although uh, at some point availability is a skill yeah, and it's not one that improves with age. That's the question for me. And, and also as much as they're unconnected does the kind of cumulative effect of a bunch of different injuries eventually precipitate more injuries i don't have the answer to that question because I, th- I don't know that anybody has the answer to that question but i don't think it's a wholly illegitimate concern no no it's not an illegitimate concern by any means but when players profile this way and they're sometimes in a spot where the injuries are unconnected it can just be luck like it just can be bad luck and the player will go on to have three or four healthy years in a row right like we've seen we see that in football even so it wouldn't be a huge concern for me but certainly a yellow flag a yellow flag for me not a red flag anyway Besser Besser over the over the course of the life of this deal I I believe that he's going to rebuild his value as a trade asset at least I I actually think he'll prove that he's no worse than the second or third best forward on this team um, and I know that the narrative is going to change around him. Like this is this is easy stuff. This is a no doubter, no doubter. Hit the money line on Brock Besser um, without reservation. He's really good, really good, a really good player. Wildly undervalued by fans in this market at the moment, and that's a take that's going to age badly. Just like all the all the Kevin Bieksa criticism did. We should. Um, I looked at. By back. the way, I read your column. And I was like, I already explained to you why this was wrong on air no, trans, you, and you doubled down you, in the column. I actually was so <laughs> shook by the amount of pushback that I got 
that I went back to my archives and I had a whole column in the, my Canucks Army days, like first two years of my career, a whole column defending three players who I dubbed the scapegoat trio of the 2011-2012 Canucks, players that were roundly criticized with like links to tweets and media reports and articles carving all of them, that the scapegoat trio featured Mason Raymond, that one you won't contest. No, I will not contest that. Roberto Luongo, that one you won't contest. But he was also a fan favorite. He was, but he was controversial. Okay, okay. And then third was Kevin Bieksa. So it's absolutely not. I'm not being revisionist. You guys are being revisionist. I'm not being revisionist either. I'm not disputing that people criticized him. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying. It's, it's like in it's, Vancouver, you can be a fan favorite and come in for criticism. This is why time. I compared it to the Beret thing, right? Oh, that first game. Everyone saw it. Wasn't televised, wasn't sold out. Stop it, right? Like 17,000 Vancouverites saw that game. Hundreds of thousands later claim they did, right? Just like. Hundreds of thousands of Canucks fans are furious at me for suggesting that Kevin Bieksa wasn't a fan favorite, even though he so clearly wasn't that I grouped him with Luongo and Mason Raymond in a trio in in February of 2012 and dubbed them the scapegoat trio. Anyway. I do love that you boosted our listenership to hundreds of thousands. (laughs) 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 That would be nice. Uh, Anyways. um, Thank you for listening. Before we move on, yes, to the hundreds and thousands of listeners uh, to Canucks Talk. Before we move on, we- we Chris Tanev would like to join this chat. Injuries can be bad luck. Look at him in Calgary. Great point, unsigned texter. Great point. There's no doubt about it. I'm just saying it's worth. It's also. I don't think it's something you can write off when you're considering the future of of uh, of Brock, Brock Besser either. I do think we might have to consider a segment called like relitigation or something. With with your love of like picking over old arguments and my actual legal background, there might there might be something there that we have to Sorry. do. Like like because you started off by saying like I want to relitigate this, and that's definitely not the first time you've said that on the show. So we might need to build a segment around the idea around relitigation. relitigation. Yes. Ooh. Any any excuse to play that music. That might be that might be a Friday afternoon thing. Oh, so relitigate a random Canucks argument from uh, from years past. uh, Ideally, from years past. Like um, I don't know if you remember me and Bruff doing Nasland Linden. It was like a random day in February, and Nasland started trending in Vancouver or sorry Canada. Marcus Naslin trending in Canada in 2019 for zero reason whatsoever, except that Bruff and I got mad about whether or not Lyndon or Naslin uh, was the better Canucks captain. Very good. <laughs> we'll save that for a future edition would, of relitigation on Canucks Talk. Would you guess who argued the le- less popular take? Yes, I would. I absolutely would guess who argued that. Um, all right. Speaking of Brock Besser, I've been meaning to play this for a while now because we did get an update and some context from uh, Brock Besser himself on his injury status after practice today. Here's what he had to say. Uh, it sucks sitting out, and uh, especially when you know everything feels good on, on your body, except you know, uh, you know my hand. Obviously, the scar opened up a bit, so um, really nothing you can do there unless until it heals and it's good enough to play. So uh, it was tough uh, sitting out and not playing just a matter of the skin going back for sure yeah um and when you play and it gets wet and sweaty uh, you know there's a chance that could happen and fortunately it happened and um you know you can get an infection if you keep playing with it and stuff and then you know that'd be way worse so um obviously we had to take care of it and and uh get it healed up hopeful to be good to go tomorrow yeah um i'm pretty hopeful uh see how it is uh 
you know, after I get my bandage off and you know, skate tomorrow morning, see how it is after then. But, um, you know, that's what I'm pushing for. That is uh, Brock Besser giving the update on his injury status. He says he's hopeful to clear, uh, get cleared and be able to play tomorrow. Bruce Boudreaux said he was more day-to-day. Didn't expect him in the lineup. But you also heard Besser say there uh, that uh, the the surgery scar had reopened. That meant he had to shut down activity, which kind of accounts for why we hadn't seen him on, on the ice earlier in the week after seeing him on the ice and hearing that it was a game-time decision. So there's the update on Brock Besser. Sounds like he is uh, very, very close. If not tomorrow, you'd expect him early on the road trip next week. And as a result, that means some other forward is going to have to come out of the lineup. And, you know, when you and I were talking, I think it was yesterday, Drancer, we were looking at Niels Hoaglander being a healthy scratch and talking and saying, hey, Besser's coming back, so it's going to be even more difficult for Hoaglander to draw back in the lineup. Lo and behold, today at practice, not only is he back in the lineup, he's skating on the first line with Bo Horvat and JT Miller. Uh, It looks like either Connor, either or one or both in the near future of Connor Garland and Vasily Podkolzin could be healthy stra- scratches for the Canucks. Yeah, I mean, look, if Hoaglander's standard, right, if the standard that Hoaglander has to hit is he has to produce, you better play him with good players. Yes. You know? Well, and is that becoming a... It's not going to the same extent because he does other things well that Hoaglander doesn't, but is that... At what point does the you have to produce conversation become a thing with Vasily Podkolzin as well? Are we there with Vasily Podkolzin? I don't think so because Vasily Podkolzin's large. Vasily Podkolzin's a large human being who can play a physical energy game very easily in your mind's eye. Right? And we've already seen Boudreaux have much more willingness to trust Podkolzin in situations like that. But also, I mean, Podkolzin's not played well, right? Podkolzin hasn't played well. I mean, there's been bad giveaways. Um, really poor decisions. I, I see a, a lack of understanding about how to drive the net and put pressure on defensemen using your size, right? Like when you're big and relatively fast, sp- sp- skating's not Pod Colson's strength, but you can tell he's improved a ton there. And when you have a high motor like he does and a relatively fixable sort of lilt in, in your skating stride, as you put on core strength and work with professional trainers at this level and and clearly he did a ton of work in the summer too that's going to get ironed out like I have no doubt about that the thing I know about Vasily Podkolzin is that he's a mature hard-working guy right that that I know about him and that's going to always cause me to give him the benefit of the doubt on an awful lot of things that that I might not for players who I don't hear the same stuff about um so but but I, I don't think he's played well like, I just don't think he's played well since he got removed from the line with Kuzmenko and Pedersen. I just don't, like, there's been too many giveaways. There yeah, just hasn't, he hasn't been, been enough discipline. Right? He hasn't been impactful. He had he, the... But he's been more than uh, not impactful. I think he's been occasionally, um, you know, I don't want to use the word irresponsible, but lackadaisical or just, like, not sure of some of the decisions that he's been making with the puck. Not safe with some of those decisions he's been making with the puck. I mean, I think I think his performance very much is in line with a guy who a coach would consider scratching in the normal course of things. Well, you just look at the bottom six, or at least here. Let's let's say this, right? He was rotating in with Dakota Joshua uh, on the fourth line. The other members of the fourth line, Niels Amon and Jack Studnika. And if you're just zeroing in on Joshua versus Vasily Podkolzin, it's pretty clear cut Dakota Joshua right now, who deserves to be in the lineup, who's playing better than Vasily Podkolzin. Now, I know you could look up. 
farther up the lineup, right, and say, well, you know, can you move Studenica back to the back to center? Take drives out. That opens up a spot on the wing. You know, you do have other centers you can play there. Can you find a way to get him in the lineup? Do not touch that fourth line. That fourth line That's now for me. That fourth line now for me played well enough that they need run, right? Like that. Well, was... I think certainly Niels Oman and Dakota Joshua are like. Well, that's that's the building block of your fourth line for the foreseeable future. For sure. But Stanika was such a good fit with them because he gave them three rangy guys who skate fast. And all of a sudden that line had really good results in the neutral zone and was able to enter with control and generate. And I mean, I loved their game. Like, you know, things things that I was excited about. Okay. Look, I've been negative about the Ducks game a little bit. So let me let me genuinely tell you there's a couple things that have me wondering if the Canucks have found a couple things that could work and re- meaningfully help them. One, that fourth line, leave it together. I need to see five games of that line at least before it's tinkered with because if they can look like 60% of that, if they can be a second Canuck, if the Canucks can have a second forward line that can simply move play and connect play across 200 feet of ice, that would be a game changer for a team that's only had one line, whichever line Pedersen's on, doing it all year, right? It's been such a gap for this team, and for the first time all season, I felt like there was a second line that could do it shift after shift last night with some level of consistency. Do not touch that. They helped address one of this team's biggest flaws in that game against Anaheim last night. So leave it. Leave it. I want to see nothing done to change that line until we've seen 50 to 60 minutes of them playing together five on five. That's one. Two, Ethan Bear, same sort of basic concept. Ethan Bear brings a level of speed to this back end that's been sorely lacking and helped connect play. I thought he was great last night. And if he can be like that every game, if he can give them second pairing performance like that, I mean, that can help them meaningfully address again what I see is this organization as this team's biggest issue right if you then get Dermot back who excels well excels who does a good job of that too on on the third pair I mean I don't want to go so far as to say like you're cooking with oil but you know certainly the 2019 blues (laughs) (sighs) certainly but but but, you know you've you've at least you've at least begun to fix some of the issues that I think have, you know, led me to say things like this defense is incompatible with the act of winning. I might have to adjust it to be like, you know, when the defense plays well, they can beat good teams, right? Like, I'd love to be able to take that leap. Ethan Bear's performance, plus that fourth line's performance last night, at least gives them a couple arrows in the quiver. The fact that Travis Dermott might travel with the team too, I'm not going to sleep on that as something that would really help, like really help this team would be if they had a puck mover of Dermott's quality uh, in the lineup in addition to Ethan Bear. Now, you know, I, w- I don't want to say, like, now we're talking. <laughs> I don't want to go that far. But at least it's progress. So those two things combined with Elias Pettersson's dominance, those were the things I actually genuinely really liked from the win over Anaheim. Uh, you know, not to leave this week on a positive note. I'm loath to do that. <laughs> you backed yourself into it. I'm loath to do that. But But genuinely watching the game, thinking about this team, Trying to figure out what's next for this team, what's sustainable, what's not sustainable. Looking at this week, realizing that, you know, score adjusted, there was something like 53% control of expected goals over the course of these four games. Like, hey, okay, that's progress. That's trending in the right direction. Let's see if they can do that against tougher opponents. Uh, but even then, the tougher opponents are still a week away, right? So can they win 
Can they get five of the next six points? Can they get five of the next six points and go into hockey night in Canada, you know, one point but below NHL 500? That would be great. That would be a big win considering where we were a week ago for this team. And there's enough trending in that direction that, you know, I'm not saying I'm betting on it. I'm not saying go build a three-game parlay in which the Canucks win their next three. I'm definitely not recommending that. Don't game like that. Use your game sense and visit our friends at playnow.com. But there's definitely a world where that can happen, and they're certainly trending in a direction where, you know, I I think they've put themselves in a spot where they have a genuine chance to show us something, show us something over the next 10 games. Uh, Final couple of thoughts here from the text message inbox. Unsigned one says, could Hoaglander on the first line just be a placeholder in the event Brock is ready. I mean, you could think that, except that Besser was rotating in on another line uh, with Connor Garland, which certainly makes it seem like that is where Besser would slot in when he's ready. We'll see how it develops. But just quickly, you know, the other thing that stood out to me, we talked about Pod Colson, but the other guy who looks poised to potentially be a healthy scratch again in the near future is Connor Garland. That would be the second time this year, Drance. And as you said, it's hard enough to move wingers with term and money left on their deals even when they're productive if you're healthy scratching a guy and you're also trying to move them to clear up cap space it becomes even more difficult than it already is right now yeah untenable it becomes an untenable situation but yeah Canucks Nashville I feel like we're gonna learn a lot about this Canucks team over the next three games they need to beat Nashville Nashville crushed the flames trucked them yesterday so um, you know, not an easy game by any means. I probably think I probably rate Nashville as a team that's a cut above Vancouver in terms of overall quality and depth, especially on the blue line. Nashville is a serious team, unlike the Anaheim Ducks. They are a serious so that's, team. That's the test, right? No, you well, did, no, that's there. You, you generated you generated offense against an unserious team. Yeah. Try to do it against a serious team. Good luck. It'll be fun to watch. Uh, We will be back on Monday to break it all down. Coming up next here on Sportsnet 650, it's Dmitry Filipovich with the Hockey PDO cast, including our guy Thomas Drant. So I hope you haven't all got your fill of Drant because he's coming up next as well here (laughs) on Sportsnet 650.